Hello and welcome to Bright Wings, children's books to make the heart soar. I am your host, Charity Hill. The purpose of this conversation is to help mothers and fathers identify books that will liberate their children to embrace truth, goodness, and beauty. Hello, listeners and friends. For the past year, I have been thinking about cynicism. I haven't been feeling cynical for a whole year, <laughs> but rather I've been just, I've been pondering what cynicism is, where it's come from, some of the features of cynicism. I've been looking at my own experience and examining how when I am cynical, sometimes I'm cynical because I think it's the smarter way to be. I'm trying to get ahead of an anticipated problem. Or I try, I'm cynical because I'm expecting the worst and I'm trying to protect myself. I'm trying to protect my expectations. I'm trying to protect myself from disappointed hopes. As I've been thinking about cynicism, I am also remembering people that I've met who are cynical and people that I've met who treated me, who definitely gave me to feel that I was stupid for being hopeful. I was stupid for being cheerful. I was stupid for thinking so much as possible. And they were smarter than me. They were more clued in than me. And that further acquaintanceship with suffering would make me wiser. That is more cynical. As I think of these people right now, as I am recording this podcast, I just need to think, like, bless them all, bless them all, because I totally disagree still. <laughs> Perhaps I am wiser, but I, I hope I am not bitter, nor do I think of myself or the world as defined by failure. I do not expect the world to be bad. I do not expect people to be bad, though I am certainly surprised by the goodness of the world and delighted by the goodness when I've discovered in people, right? It's so gratuitous. And yet all of this to say that even though I am hopeful in principle, I do find myself, and don't we all, when we look around, when we hear the news, we find ourselves being challenged in cynicism. I would say that cynicism is a stance. It's a prior commitment or a prior judgment about the nature of things that then conditions our perspective. Cynicism is a condition to our perspective that affects what we see. It's a perspective that conditions how we respond, how we act. Think about cynicism as a stance towards reality. If you're standing with your head down, you're only going to see so much. And what you see is going to shape what you think the world is. Your stance is going to affect uh, what you think the world is for, what people are for. Your stance is going to affect what you think is possible. I write for Well-Read Mom. I write the family supplement for Well-Read Mom. I pair children's literature with the things that the women are reading month to month. So they share uh, a theme and I pick out a picture book and a middle grade novel. So this whole past year in Well-Read Mom, the theme for the year has been the year of the giver. And so Last year, so that's why I've been thinking about cynicism for more than a year. Uh, last year, I've been, since then, I've been pondering how hope or cynicism is a position that frames our choices. And because it's the year of the giver, I've been thinking for the past year that if the world is a gift, is the cynical stance the most intelligent stance to have regarding a problem? If the world is a gift, then 
if it really is, like if at the heart of things is a gift, is cynicism the most intelligent response to reality? Now, the short answer to that is no. Cynicism is not an adequate response to reality. Cynicism is not an adequate stance regarding the world as a gift. The long answer would have to get into metaphysics, maybe, and even theology. That is, I would have to start talking about how being and the good are convertible. So anything that you say about being, you can say about the good. And anything that you can say about the good, you can say about being. It's fun. You should try it sometime. That's the metaphysical part of the answer that you would have to, I would have to dig into. And then the theological one is that there would have to be something in which you can ground your hope. In fact, uh, someone that could ground all hope, that there would be a personal answer for hope, a perfectly subjective and perfectly objective ground for your hope. But maybe we don't need to get into metaphysics or theology to talk about how cynicism is not an adequate response to reality. And how do we know this? We can simply turn to our picture books and our children's literature. We can see our metaphysics and our theology in our picture books. Just like I said back in episode one, our picture books are making claims about what the world is really like, about what reality is, and about what people are for. Surely no one would want to claim that our picture books, what we feed our children, that it's all a pack of lies. Our children's books are not a way of whistling in the dark. Rather, they are the beginning of wisdom. To turn away from cynicism and embrace innocence is not to embrace naivety, but wisdom. And I think Socrates even would agree that wisdom is the embrace of the whole. It's the love of the whole. To be wise, to love and embrace the whole requires the deepest kind of intelligence. So if we are to love the whole as a gift, we have to be more than cynical. We have to be more intelligent than that. The good news is that I'm not alone in thinking this. A few weeks ago, I was in another Texas city and I met a lovely woman named Anna Reynolds. I was delighted to be identified in the wild as, yes, indeed, Charity Hill from Bright Wings. <laughs> that was fun. And Anna asked me, we got to talking about what each of us was thinking about and wanting to write about. And so I spoke to her about this, this notion of cynicism that I've been thinking about on and off for a year. And she said, well, I have an idea about that. I've been thinking about it too. And I invited Anna to publish an essay on the Bright Wings blog. And since not as many of you read the blog as listen to this podcast, I thought I would record Anna's essay and share it with you today. Anna's essay takes up the experience of reading Moret on the High Wire by Emily Arnold McCulley. What I appreciate most about this essay is it it challenges me that when I am cynical, I shouldn't think, hey, I know, I know what it's like, and I am right to think like this. Rather, when I am cynical, I should think, oh, there's something wrong with me. I'm thinking this way because I am afraid, or because I like to be right, or because I'm proud, arrogant even. Now, of course, many of us are inclined to be cynical because we want to protect our children. That's totally understandable, but we should still be challenged in that. By who? By our children. With pleasure, I present to you Anna Reynolds' essay, Innocence, A Perspective for Intelligent Reading. Certain books from childhood are seared into your memory. Usually, they are the ones you had in the house and routinely picked up and thumbed through. They may not be stories we consciously call to mind, 
but they have formed the landscape of our inner world in subtle ways. When you encounter one of these books in adulthood, there's a quiet thrill in rediscovering the images and story impressed on your imagination all these years. Emily Arnold McCulley's Moret on the High Wire is such a book for me. I vividly remember the captivating illustrations of Moret in her many colorful dresses, falling from the wire again and again as she slowly and painfully learns to walk as though on the air. It is not difficult to understand why the book won the 1993 Caldecott Medal. Revisiting books from childhood can also be jarring. With the world-weary eyes of an adult, scenes that were once inspiring can now appear concerning or deceptive. Stories that seem straightforward to a child may take on layers of emotional complexity to an adult. Thinking we understand why people act as they do can alter the way we consider a setback or a triumph. We can feel foolish for seeing the work in an uncomplicated way. But that is the only way that children can see it. For good children's books, we should not let this change in us overshadow the story. The difference in our perception can invite our curiosity. How has our view of the world changed and why? What is the inherent goodness we saw in the book and how can we rediscover it? The path is learning to see from the perspective of innocence, a childlike experience of the story and of the world. What comes naturally to children requires a kind of learning for the adult. The effort is well worthwhile, as we will see, and it can steer us away from the mire of cynicism and buoy our spirits with hope. Consider Moret on the High Wire. The book set in Paris in the late 19th century follows Moret as she helps her mother, Madame Gateau, in the endless work of running a boarding house. Moret spends her time, quote, washing linens, chopping leeks, paring potatoes, and mopping floors, end quote. Already the adult reading the book might become concerned. Why is Moret expected to work so much? What kind of childhood is this? But amid the many daily tasks, Moret has moments to listen with rapt attention to the tables of the boarding house's many interesting guests, actors, performers, and artists talking about the world and their ideas and experiences. From overhearing these conversations that go on long after the dinner hour, Moret develops a vision of life beyond the confines of ordinary work and life. Her vision expands most dramatically, however, with the entrance of a guest who talks little. The mysterious Monsieur Bellini, a, quote, tall, sad-faced stranger, end quote, does not mingle with the others, but takes a quiet room and prefers to eat his meals alone. Marat, flitting about the boarding house with her daily duties, catches sight of Bellini, balancing on the laundry line and walking across the air. She is captivated. Of all the things a person could do, this must be the most magical. Her feet tingled as if they wanted to jump on the wire beside Bellini. Bellini is brusque and dismisses Marat as too young to learn how to become a wire walker. Irrepressibly persistent as only children can be, Marat refuses to take no for an answer and tries to teach herself. Impressed with her hard-won progress and emerging ability, Bellini reluctantly agrees to teach her. 
If the reader is a mother living in a time of true crime fascination, fractured families, and all the strange deviant behavior facilitated by the internet, this relationship of a taciturn grown man and an impressionable young girl might raise alarms. Marette is filled with enthusiasm, rising early to complete her chores before her daily lessons, but there is no indication that her mother is aware of her private lessons with a man who refuses to socialize with the other guests of the boarding house. Is something amiss? We should, however, press on. Arnold McCulley has created a universe of childlike wonder, not an exact copy of the world as we think we know it. The story does not follow the dark progression we have grown to expect in our cynicism, but instead transforms woundedness with new life. One of the guests recognizes Bellini, and Moret overhears that he is, in fact, the great Bellini, a renowned daredevil and performance artist. He has walked above Niagara Falls, stopping to cook an omelet. He has amazed crowds around the world. Delighted by the revelation, Miret rushes to Bellini's room. An image of an unaccompanied young girl bursting into the room of an aging bachelor is enough momentarily to stop the heart of a paranoid, normal mother. Yet, what transpires is not Bellini's destruction of an innocent young girl, but instead a moving, fictive example of the ability of innocence to heal and to transform. Moret demands that Bellini let her accompany him on his death-defying world tours, but he refuses. Bellini says simply that he is afraid. Moret was astonished. Afraid, she said. But why? Once you have fear on the wire, it never leaves, Bellini said. But you must make it leave, Miret insisted. I cannot, said Bellini. Miret is crushed and seems to give up her newfound passion for wire walking. Bellini rightly cannot bear to be seen by Miret and her innocent eyes. To the undefiled, his cowardice is inexcusable. Of course, people who have lived enough life will nod knowingly and accept that sometimes our dreams don't come to fruition. Sometimes we don't live up to our promises. Sometimes there is pain we submit to and cannot understand. The cold logic of the cynical accepts that once you have fear, it can never be overcome. However, because of Miret's innocent perspective, Bellini no longer accepts defeat. He realizes that if he does not face his fear, he cannot face Miret. With an agent staying at the boarding house, Bellini hatches a plan to resurrect his career with a performance in the middle of the city. In the final moment, it is Miret who gives him the courage to step out onto the wire and walk on to the end. The triumphant conclusion is only possible because a wounded man encountered the uncompromising vision of an innocent young girl. Just so, the adult revisiting a children's book, can find newfound hope and joy. We are tempted to turn to explanations for evil, excuses for disappointment, and presume that happy endings are only imaginary. How much of this jaded outlook is the result of a cynicism we say is intelligence, a shield to protect ourselves from disappointment? We cannot ignore the harsh realities of life in a world with childish ignorance, but nor should we abandon a childlike wonder at possibility, at excellence and goodness. And what about our children? Is it wrong to give them a steady diet of such marvelous and imaginative stories of children's innocence? 
Are they missing out on learning what the world is really like? What is the world really like? We should certainly give our children stories about predators and make them aware of the people who might wish them ill. Just an aside for a second that Anna Reynolds links to a story of Peter Rabbit on the subject of predators. So this is small. I can begin early this kind of equipping. Another example is the poem, The Spider and the Fly. A child growing older who does not know the guile of flattery, for example, will be in danger. At the same time, we should not be quick to impose our limitations on children who do not yet have them. We can say then that a good children's book is not a, quote, children's book at all, but a good story that offers an innocent perspective, one that benefits the jaded with an opportunity for renewed hope and protects the young from premature loss of innocence. We should clarify that a story of innocence is not unrealistic per se. This can be hard for us to accept because so many of us are entrenched in a cynical worldview. While it is perhaps unlikely that innocence overcomes cowardice so spectacularly, there are countless real examples of just this dynamic. How many mothers and fathers and grandparents, you know, in your own time, have been inspired to renewed hope and virtue through the experience of having young children? The child's ability to inspire self-sacrifice and virtue is not the result of delusion, but of recognition of the goodness that is inherent in the world. While there are many sad stories of disorder and disease, there are also many shining examples in the real world of beauty. What stories of innocence insist upon is that evil is not inevitable. Also, it's worth noting that Arnold McCulley's Moret is not spared harsh lessons. In struggling to balance on the wire, she falls, no doubt painfully, time and again. Drawing on her own experience as a self-described daredevil, Arnold McCulley does not fantasize about a life of ease. Moret's progress on the wire mirrors Arnold McCulley's unlikely career as a children's book illustrator, which she pursued through continual effort and countless failures. We should not confuse childlike perspective with the saccharine. Why should we spend our time revisiting childlike books? We all need stories that imagine the world as better and more luminous than we experience it right now, or ever that it was, for that matter. No, we should not encourage our children to become the protege of an emotionally battered middle-aged man who lives alone. In the fallen and difficult world in which we live, this is naive and invites disaster. But nor should we push our children to shed the unfettered vision of youth and possibility. In stories about innocence, we find respite from cynicism and food for the imagination so that our children have ideals worth striving for. If you picked up a book you remember fondly from your childhood and were alarmed by it, consider how your perspective has changed and why. Have the intervening years made you wiser? Have you become less trusting? Is there anything you have lost by becoming more cynical? There is much to be gained by relearning to see the world like Mirette. Much to be gained by learning to let go of self-limiting fears like Bellini that we unknowingly accept without question. Again, that fine, insightful essay was written by Anna Kaladish Reynolds. I would love to hear from you and I would love to partner with you. If you 
too, are thinking about themes related to children's literature, to sort of meta questions related to being a family and reading books, please do email me at brightwingschildrensbooks at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. It would be fun to publish um, your reflections and your thoughtful writing. I'm delighted to have met Anna, and it's wonderful to know that there are other women um, and parents out there who are thinking deeply about and care, who give a care about children's literature. So I would love to hear from you, um, even if it's only to say hi, but I would also be so glad to collaborate with more of you. If any of you want to check out Anna's blog, Such Good Writing, her blog's titled InspireVirtue.com. The link to Anna's essay is in the show notes if you would prefer to take a closer look and read it. Thank you for listening and for considering how innocence is a wise perspective for intelligent reading.